All right, well, good morning, church. We, uh, we're studying the book of Romans. Today we're going to be looking at the second half of the first chapter uh, called When God Gives Up. And that title is intentionally provocative. Uh, for the next month, we are going to be looking at the subject of sin, specifically talking about how sinful you and I are. I am not going to be winning any popularity contests with this subject. Uh, Paul's message, starting in Romans 1, verse 18, until chapter 3, verse 20, is essentially this. I stink. You all really stink, all right? No, we all equally stink. But what we're going to find is the world is dripping with sin and deserves the eternal wrath of God. Good morning, right? But I believe this is a message of love. Yes, a message of love that must be preached. Now, why is that a message of love? Wouldn't it be better for me just to come in here this morning and tell you how you're all just a bunch of beautiful snowflakes, right? And, no, and, and you know, sin doesn't matter. It's all good, man. And we'll just, God, at the end of time, is just going to give us one big group hug. Wouldn't that be a better message, a more palatable message? Well, it's not better because it's a lie from the pit of hell. And because my job is to tell you the truth, there's this passage in James that says, teachers incur a stricter judgment. I hate that passage, right? But it's my job. I owe you the truth, even when it hurts. If you were to go to a doctor, and the doctor was to tell you after a thorough examination, hey, everything looks great. You've got the body of a Greek god, right? Which I get all the time with my personal... Sorry, Lord. Sorry. <laughs> sound guys keep me in check <laughs> so he says everything looks good man but it turns out what the doctor had actually discovered was that I had stage four cancer and that I had six months to live now was that a good doctor because he didn't want to ruin my day with bad news no of course not someone needs to remove that quacks license right that's actually utter cruelty to not tell me what I need to know a good doctor would look me in the eyeballs and tell me exactly what's wrong with me. The depth of my problem, because it's only once I come to understand how extreme my situation is, that I am going to die, that I will be willing to accept a remedy. See, no one wants to suffer through something like chemotherapy or amputation. We don't just go through those for fun. But if we know that that's our only chance for survival, We'll do whatever it takes. And until we recognize and understand the depths of our own wickedness, of our own sinfulness, we will not throw ourselves at the foot of the cross. We will not say, Jesus, save me. Kill me, amputate me, whatever it takes. And we saw last week, Paul opens this letter with a thesis statement. And this is what he said. There was three fours. We talked about the connecting words. He said, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. And here's why. Four, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Why am I not ashamed of this gospel? For it's the power of God to save people. And, and why is it the power of God to save people? For in this gospel, it reveals how we can be made right in God's sight. But as powerful as the gospel is, until we see our hopeless condition, until we understand that we are guilty and condemned and have no shot on our own, how desperately we need God's righteousness, we're not going to seek it. 
We are not going to truly accept the remedy until we understand the diagnosis. And so that's why Paul turns here first. Before he gets into salvation, before he gets into any other part of the Christian life, he must start with sin. And that's why he beats this drum for three chapters. We must understand the diagnosis before we'll accept the remedy. We must hear and believe the bad news before we accept the good news. I also want to remind you as we walk through this journey together, uh, in your bulletins we've got a little uh, a weekly reading guide to get us in the Word of God. There's also go to our website and you can click on the sermons tab and the Romans reading plan. And I just, you know, as, as important as it is for us to eat food every single day, it is even more important. Man shall not live by bread alone. And if we're not feeding ourselves on the Word of God, we are spiritually starving. I encourage us to be in the Word and discover Jesus. So we're going to go on a field trip this morning. Paul's going to take us into the courtroom of the universe. The courtroom of the universe. And on trial is humankind. Humankind stands on trial. And what are we on trial for? Remember our theme? Righteousness. The question is, is man right before God or is he wrong before God? The ultimate question in our lives, what, what matters the most, this Trial will decide the fate of mankind. Will he live with God forever, which is life, or will he be separated from God forever, which is death? And God, God is the judge. And isn't this always important to remember? Listen, once I create a universe by simply speaking it into existence, then I can judge that universe, right? But until that time, until that time, I can barely make an omelet, let alone a human race. <laughs> and so God, God is the creator, ergo, I belong to him. I'm accountable to that God, that he gets the final say in everything, right? That, that he's the judge. We don't get to put God on trial and decide if he's the kind of God that we want or not. God is God. God is the judge. I am not. So here's God as the judge, and he's going to call witnesses to the stand. And in chapter one, he's going to call creation Chapter 2, he's going to call conscience. And then in three weeks from now, we'll see in 2 and 3, he calls the law to the stand to witness against mankind. And as he calls these witnesses to the stand, he's going to talk to four main culprits of the human race. First of all, this week, we'll see what we call the heathen. And then next week, the moralist. Then the third week, the Jew. And then finally, he'll step back and look at the whole entire human race on trial before God. So the trial begins. Verse 18. This is the fourth four. Remember we said there's four fours? We always ask ourselves, what's the, what's the therefore, therefore? So the last four, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's the four. He said, For I'm not ashamed of this gospel. For it's the power of God to save. For it reveals God's righteousness. And why is that so important? Because God's wrath has been revealed from heaven against all the wrongness of the world. And we desperately need saved from this wrath. So we got to start with asking the question, well, what is wrath? There's a couple of Greek words here. The first one is, is thumos. Thumos. It means a blast of hot air. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> that was gross. To breathe violently. To pant with temper. <laughs> it means a sudden burst of anger. I'm, no, I won't do that. And this, luckily, the good news is, this is not the wrath. This is not the Greek word that's on the paper in verse 18. This is not, if you're a Star Trek fan, the wrath of Khan, right? 
on. This is not me after a Duke loss. I can't believe it. Like, why didn't they go into the 2-3 zone? I told them, and they're stupid, and I'm starting to break things, and, and people are hiding lamps from me, and I just, I lose my cool. This kind of wrath is talking about a, 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 an uncontrollable rage. This is not, listen, the wrath of God is not God on some drunken tirade out of control. That's not the wrath that's talked about here. The word here that is used is orge, which means passion, right? Getting to the root, that's for a different discussion. And this is what this word means. It means God's holy aversion to all that is evil. His holy aversion, his anger against all that, that is evil. And when we think about this term, think about it in the term, uh, uh, in the context of a courtroom or a law, the wrath of the law, the wrath of a judge. If someone's put on trial for murder and they're found guilty, they come under the wrath of the judge, under the wrath of the law. Now, this is not saying the judge jumps over the bench and just starts strangling him. That's not the wrath that's talked about here. The wrath is right punishment against what he did. And the wrath of God against all mankind is his right punishment against what we've done. Now, having said that, this is not to say that God is not emotive. Think Jesus in the temple. There was plenty of a raw emotion in the temple. He has a passionate, a passionate, holy hatred against sin. But it is not an uncontrolled reaction to it. He's slow to anger the Bible says. And this is important to note here. What exactly is his wrath of God against? What exactly is the wrath of God against? It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice he doesn't say the wrath of God against men and women. You guys get wrath too, right? Against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings. There's a big difference. See, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. I guess we really are snowflakes then. But the, it, it, he loves you. He loves me. But he must deal with, he must rightly punish our sin, our sin nature, our ungodliness, and our unrighteousness. These are the two words he uses specifically here. Now, he uses these two words. These are different words. They're not just complete synonyms, although they can be used interchangeably at times. And he starts with ungodliness. Now, what is ungodliness? It doesn't mean that you're not God, right? We know we're not God. We're not being punished for not being God. We are being punished for not approaching God in a godly way. This means that we do not worship God rightly. That's our main problem, that we don't worship God as he should be. We are not godly. And then the second problem, as a result of the first problem, is that we are unrighteous. We are not right. Because we don't worship God rightly, we do not do the right things. We are not, we are not moral beings. Every single wrong, every sin that's ever been committed stems from not worshiping God rightly. If we worship God as, as he perfectly deserves, then we wouldn't commit no other sin. Because we do not love God, we do not love our fellow man. Unrighteousness and ungodliness. And so the first person he puts on the stand here is the heathen. The heathen. Now when we use this word, the, the, Amer the English word, the, the Webster's Dictionary says, a heathen is someone who does not acknowledge the God of the Bible. Someone who's saying, uh, not even putting themselves under that category. And in fact, we're going to see Paul showing that, that most likely it's that they haven't even heard the Bible. They don't even know that the Bible is a thing. And so we ask ourselves the question in the courtroom, are the heathen guilty before God? 
Because the first objection that's going to pop up in this courtroom is, wait a second, you're saying the wrath of God is revealed against those who suppress the truth. But what about those who have never even heard the truth? What about those who have never heard a word from the Bible? How can they be guilty? I've got a couple of friends from Bible school, the Hattons and the Allens. And I uh, went to missionary training with them. And they now serve in Papua New Guinea. It's a, a group of islands just north of Australia. And they're working with the Omdu people. It's a, it's a people group that have never heard, in the history of their people, have never heard the gospel translated into the Omdu language. They've never heard the name of Jesus in their tongue. And so the Allens and the Hattons were the first to ever come to them, and they've been learning their language. In fact, this last year, they've been going through this literacy class where they're teaching the Omdu how to read and write their own language to prepare them to hear the Word of God and then be able to read the Word of God for themselves. In fact, just these last few weeks, my buddy Bart, he's been translating, he started in Genesis, and he's been translating major portions of Scripture as they're getting ready to tell them the greatest story that they'll ever hear. And remember, we walked through his story, the chronological story of the Bible. They're going to be taking the Omdu through that story. And I can't wait to hear of Omdu, brothers and sisters, welcomed into the family of God to sing his praises forever with us. But here's the question. For centuries, the Omdu people have lived and died without hearing the gospel. And is it right, is it right for God to send them to hell? Are they legitimately guilty before their God? There are no easy answers to these questions. But Paul is going to address this by asking three important questions for us in chapter 1. He's going to ask, what do they know? How do they respond? And what is God's judgment? What do they know? How do they respond to what they know? And what's God's response, his final say, to their response to what he shows them? Let's look at these three. First of all, what do they know? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. He says there's something that even the remote tribal man or woman can know about God because God, in his grace, has revealed to them what they need to know about him. So what is that thing that they know? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So two things he says they know about God. His eternal power, and there's the word dunamis again, remember the power of God to to save? His eternal power and his divine nature, they can know this. And how can they know this? He doesn't say through the Bible. He says through creation. The, The term we use is general revelation. He has revealed things about himself through What he says, things that have been made. And this phrase here, things that have been made, is actually one word in the Greek. And it's the the word poema. And what does that look like in English? It's a poem. This is so beautiful. Creation, the things that have been made, is God's poetry to us. It's his work of art to us. Now look, when you look at a poem, do you instinctively go, man, I'm really glad that someone emptied a can of alphabet soup on a piece of paper and it just came and it even rhymed, right? It just made this beautiful poem. No, what do we say? Man, there was somebody, this, there's a beauty in this poem, and that means there was someone who designed this poem, someone who wrote this poem, and it's beautiful, and I'm thankful that they did so. And when you and I, when we look at creation... And everybody on earth gets a, a peek at beautiful creation, except those in Indiana, all right? 
I can, I can make that joke because I'm from Indiana, so I'm allowed. We, we don't go, man, man, I'm glad that God just, that, that, that things just randomly fell together this way. And I'm glad this all just kind of kind of came out the way it came out. No, we look at the stars and we go, man, there is some powerful, some divine designer. Look at the design. Now, this isn't saying if you look at the stars just right, the constellations will spell out Jesus Christ died for your sins, right? It's not saying, there's a lot of things we don't know about God and his truth in, in, in creation. But what it is saying is that people intuitively know that there is a personal being bigger than them running the show. And you go to every single tribal group of people on earth today, and they have spiritual beliefs, they have spiritual practices, they have spiritual taboos, and they violate their own beliefs, practices, and taboos. So what Paul says here is even the most remote tribal people have been shown God's power and his nature. And then he says this about this, for what can be known about God is plain to them. God made this plain to them. It's clearly perceived by them, so they are without excuse. For they knew God. They knew God. Paul says, Your Honor, they have had sufficient evidence to be thankful and to honor the creator of this poem. That's what they know. So how do they respond to this? How do they respond to this? Question number two. It says in verse 18, they suppress the truth. Here's the truth about God revealed to them. They suppress it. What does the word suppress mean? It means they put it into a box, close the lid, and sit on it. They hide the truth. They don't want it to be seen. Why? Why? Well, he says, by their unrighteousness. By their unrighteousness. See, the truth sheds light, doesn't it? That's, that's the job of truth. It sheds light. And so if you don't want something to be seen, you, you hide it. You hide the light. John 3 tells us this. All who do evil, all who are not right, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it. Why? For, their fear, for fear their sins will be exposed. This takes us back to, to page one of the, of the Bible, right? Adam and Eve, when they sin, what's the first thing they do? They try to cover themselves with fig leaves and they hide. Why? Because they don't want God to find out what they've done. They run from the light, they run from the truth, and they hide. And the reason that man wants a Big Bang Theory instead of creation is because creation implies a creator which creates accountability. And we don't want to be accountable to something bigger than ourselves. See, Paul says the reason they suppressed the truth is because they were not right. And they did not want their unrighteousness to be seen, to be exposed, or to be judged. So they hid. And this is where we go. We start walking down the stairs of sin. For although, verse 21, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Because they exchanged the truth, they suppressed the truth, and this is what they do. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is what we call idolatry. 
idolatry. Instead of thanking and worshiping the creator of this poem, they worshiped and served the poem itself. Now, why in the world would you do that? Why would you worship the, the creation instead of the creator? Well, think about this. Because if God, if God is the creator and I'm made in his image, then, then he gets the glory and he calls the shots. But if I fashion things of my own design and worship them, what does that really lead me to? Now, I'm the creator and I get the glory and I call the shots. This is pride. Pride. Again, we go back to the garden. The first lie ever whispered. You don't have to listen to this God you can be your own God. You can eat of the fruit of the tree and you can decide what's right or wrong. You don't need this God telling you to what's right and what's wrong. And my sinful heart wants to put my little hiney on the throne because I want to do what I want to do. I want to be in control. I want the power. I want the glory. So here's Paul's conclusion. The heathen lost. Even someone who's never heard a word of the Bible is still guilty. Why? He says, because they know there is this divine poet who is powerful and who's worthy of being thanked and honored, but they chose not that truth, but they chose the lie. And the sinful heart, this is, this is the sinful heart of man never responds to the light level they are given. The sinful heart of man, so in other words, light level meaning the amount of information you have. So whatever information you've given, you've been given about God, we never respond rightly to it, no matter how much light or how much little light you have. Say it another way. We always know more truth than we obey. We always know more truth than we obey. So let me give you an example. As a three-year-old, I didn't know a lot of things, but I knew a few things, Right? I knew, don't bite your sister, even though as bad as I wanted to. I knew, don't hide in mom and dad's closet, right, off limits. And I knew that I had to do the dishes. Three years old, can you believe that? They must not have had child labor laws in 1987, I don't know. So there weren't a lot of things that I had to do. But do you think I did even those few things that I did know? Absolutely not. And I was accountable for those things and for not doing those things. And I had a pink derriere to prove it, right? Now, as I got older and more mature, this is my favorite picture of my maturity. You know what, guys? I no longer bite my sister. <laughs> I know, pretty good. It's been months, right? It's been months. I no longer hide in my parents' closet anymore, right? But I also know a lot more. My light level has increased significantly. And you know what else? I also disobey a lot more. And I'm a lot more accountable for the light that I have given now than I had when I was three years old. And, and, and the reality is, even the person with the lowest light level of who God is on earth, even the Omdu people in Papua New Guinea, they are accountable for what they know. And if we knew, if my sinful heart knew one thing about God, I would not respond to it rightly. I would not respond to it rightly. So what's God's judgment? What's God's judgment against these people who've seen the truth but have suppressed the truth and not worshiped God rightly? It says three times in chapter one, God gave them up. God gave them up. Verse 24, 26, and 28. We titled this message, When God Gives Up. And what we don't mean by that is that God threw in the towel, that God quit, that God stopped trying. 
This word means to give them over to something. And what we see here is God gives mankind over to his sinful desires. He gives him what he wants. He gives him what he wants. And three things we're going to see here that he gives him. He gives him over to the lust of his heart. He gives him over to his dishonorable passions. And he gives him over to a debased mind. God gives mankind what he wants. And C.S. Lewis says often, he says it better than I could. He says there's only two kinds of people in the end. Two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. It's a haunting thing to think about. He says, all that are in hell choose it, meaning the second one. You see, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose it. God will always give us what we most want. And if we most want him, he'll give us himself. And if we most want our way, he'll give us our way. And what God does is he removes his restraining forces and he lets sinners wander in their own sins. See, the wrath of God revealed from heaven is not fire. It's abandoning sinful men to their own lustful ways. Think about the story of the prodigal son. The son said, I want my inheritance right now. I want my way, not your way. And what did the father do? He gave him up to what he wanted. He gave him his inheritance early. And the son took it, and he went into the city. And what happened? Did he find fulfillment? Did he find happiness? Did he find contentment? No. He went lower and lower and lower in his own sinful, selfish desires until where did he end up? In the slop with the pigs in the hell of his own choosing. Hell is getting what we want instead of what God wants. And it's not pretty. You take any one sin, unchecked by the common grace of God, you carry it out to its logical conclusion, and it is death, it is destruction. It's hell. Separation from God. And this is the, the, stair, sta the staircase down that he takes us, is that idolatry, not worshiping God right, it will always lead to immorality, to not be moral, to not do the right thing. Or as we said earlier from verse 18, ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. If we don't worship God right, we're not going to act right. We're not going to treat others right. We're not going to live right. And you follow this staircase down. And this gets ugly. And this, this kind of preaches itself. So we're just going to read through it here. This is the New Living Translation. It makes it a little more readable as we go through it. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip, 
They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. Nice bedtime reading with your kids. This is man choosing his own health. And he wraps it up in verse 32. Back to the ESV. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, again, there's this intuition. They understand. They know the punishment. They know what they're doing is wrong. See, sin is not an issue of logic. It's an issue of will. It's an issue of desire. We stare truth in the face and we do what we want. It's never somebody going, oh, I didn't know drugs were bad for me. That's my brain on drugs. Oh, I'll never do it again, right? I didn't know looking at pornography would have those kind of consequences. I didn't know cheating on my spouse was a bad idea. I didn't know. It's not about logic. It's about desire. And we always do what we most want to do. stare truth in the face we will stare god in the face we will spit in his face and we'll do what we darn well want that's the sinful heart of man and then he says not only do they do those things not only do they do them but they give approval to those who practice them this word approval means to applaud Say, not only do you do these wrong things, you applaud, you encourage other people who do similar wicked things. Paul's addressing some pretty wretched people, isn't he? We have to be careful how we land the plane with this one. There was a missionary in the 1500s, his name was John Bradford, only lived to be 45 years old because he gave his life as a martyr for Jesus. And John Bradford, he told this story of of what's become now a well-known phrase. He saw this group of heinous criminals being led to their execution. A group of men who had done unmentionable things to other people and were going to be killed for it. And when he watched them going to death row, he didn't go, man, I'm glad I'm not a sinner like them. Thank you, God. Thank you that I'm better than they are. Now, as he watched them march to their death because of the vile things they did, you know what he said? He said, there, but the grace of God goes John Bradford. And we would do well to note that when we see that man at the corner of Fred Meyer, when we see a drunk reeling in the streets, when we see a broken marriage, we don't go, glad I'm not as jacked up as they are. Glad I'm not to that extent. When we see someone who has treated small children wrongly, when we see the serial killer on death row, and I don't mean to be sensational, but we have to understand, until we see that the most vile of sinners is us too, but for the grace of God, who will not understand our need for the remedy. May we have ears to hear and not read this passage and go, man, Justin, you're right. There are some nasty people out there, and I will pray for them. going to lead us to the next week when we talk about the moralist, the hypocrite, the judgy McJudgerton. But until we say, but for the grace of God, that's me too. Until I see I am no more right than the most vile of vile 
Now, no, as we look at this list of sins, this does not mean that that we've committed every sin on this list. That we've done every worst thing imaginable on earth. But we have to understand the germ is there. We have to understand the potential is there. That the same sin, the same evil, lies pregnant in every single one of us. There was a recent study that was done to show that the people that are most likely to share their faith are not necessarily the people that are the most eloquent, people that have the most friends, aren't believers. The people who are most likely to share their faith are actually the people who are most willing to confess their own sin. And you see the link. Because if somebody thinks that they're self-righteous, I'm good. I don't, I don't really need a Savior. And if I don't really need a Savior, then why am I really going to need to tell everybody else about this Savior? But if I understand, if I'm willing to confess real sin in my life and understand the depth of my own depravity, Man, I need that doctor. I need that remedy more than anything else in the world. And when I've discovered it, I'm going to tell every single person I know. William Newell, he said these beautiful words. He said, the more you discover yourself to be a common sinner, the more you will realize God's uncommon grace. And the more deep you despair of man, of yourself, the more simply and easy it will be to rest in Christ and his work of salvation for you. until we see the depths of our own sin we're the man being told that we're okay until we apply sin to our own situation we're not going to see a doctor but the good news the great news is that Jesus came Jesus came as the good doctor and this is what the good doctor said he said healthy people don't need a doctor sick people do I have come not to call those who think that they're righteous, who think they're good before me on their own, but who understand the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against them, that they're guilty in their sins. But those who know that they are sinners, those who know they're sinners. You go back to the story of the prodigal son. The father gave him up, but the father didn't give up on him. The father didn't completely abandon him. And when the son had gone to the end of his sin, He took it to its logical end, and he didn't want it anymore, and he came back to the Father. When he repented and returned, did the Father stiff-arm him? No. When the Son was still a long way off, he ran to him, and he threw his arms around him, and he said, Welcome home. The lost has been found. May we come to understand the depth and the power of our sin, and then lift up our eyes to see the infinitely deeper and more powerful gospel. This is what the book of Romans is all about. The power of gospel to save. And only people who are lost need saved. Let's pray. Father, we come to understand in this passage today that your wrath has rightly been revealed from heaven against every single one of us. Father, may we believe and see we are no better than any other human on the face of this earth. That we deserve your anger. We deserve your punishment. We deserve your wrath against our ungodliness, against our unrighteousness. May we have eyes to see and receive and believe the bad news. But God, you did not stop there. Because you sent Jesus. You sent Jesus to this earth to absorb that very wrath on the cross. And in Jesus, the wrath that was rightly dumped out on me has been fully satisfied on the cross. And as we move into a time 
of worship, to worship you rightly as you are worthy of being thanked and worshipped as the poet of creation. As we take the bread and the cup, may we have eyes to see the beauty of what Jesus did for us in absorbing our wrath. It's in his sovereign, saving, beautiful name that we pray. Amen.